Well, it is good to see you back for this evening service. Um, I've been encouraging believers uh, when I'm visiting somewhere to be coming for the evening service. Because think about it, if um, in one year you come for both morning and evening service, if you come only for the morning, you're here, let's say, roughly 50 times. If you come both, it's 100 times. It's ad it adds up. And uh, just like with physical food, we have you, know, you don't just have your breakfast, you have your dinner as well. Right? And uh, so it's soul strengthening. And so I encourage you, I commend you for coming and, and hope that you will be coming uh, during your regular Sundays here. We commit to being here morning and evening. Be good for your soul. Well, we turn back to First Peter chapter 1. First Peter 1. We began looking at this this morning. Focusing especially on the theme of the new birth. Let's read again uh, from verse 3 to 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guided through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. Thus far, we read God's word. Let's, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us again to uh, your word. And we look to you now, asking that you will bless it to us. And we pray that you will open our eyes yet more and more to see the wonders of your salvation. We pray that uh, we would uh, yet again say with Peter, blessed be our God. We ask for help, pray for strength, even physically on an evening like this. Uh, we pray give us uh, attention to your word and that you would do us good. We commit this time to you asking that you be glorified and that you would do us good by your word, by your spirit, and we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our hope. Amen. 
So I remind you that we started looking at this and saw how beginning in verse 3, the apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there he, he breaks out into this praise to God with thanksgiving and praise and adoration to God. We notice that word blessed. It, it, it speaks to us of the fullness of good, the infinite goodness that is in God, all that he is in himself, self-sufficient, a fountain of all good. And, and then there's a thought of re having received the good from him, which then leads to this overflow of praise to him. And we noticed why, why it is that uh, the apostle Peter is breaking out in this praise to God. It's as he contemplates the wonders of God's salvation, which he goes on to open up for us in these verses. But he begins with the new birth. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then he goes on uh, to speak, uh, pointing us all the way to the future expectation that we have uh, at the revelation of Christ. But again, I, notice he begins with the new birth. And so we're, uh, we saw this morning, hallelujah for the new birth. Because this word blessed as he's praising God, it, it also is calling us. It's calling his, his readers and us by extension to join in praising this God. If you've tasted the, his salvation beginning with the new birth, being born again that we would praise him. And hallelujah is a word that it's calling us to, to praise. Praise God. So we're now looking at hallelujah for the new birth, part two, just continuing where, where we left off. And I remind you why we're doing this. Yes, so that we would see again the new birth, the glories of it, that we may join the apostle in praising God for it. But also... The new birth, as we shall see, um, is is used in both in, in in this in this epistle and in other places to encourage us to press on, as it is one of those things that shows us the wonders of God's salvation, telling us, "Wait, it's worth it. This is big. This is good." To press on, no matter what suffering uh, might come our way, which is the situation of of Peter's hearers, they were in suffering, persecution. But also, I remind you again that we said one of the purposes for this is so that unbelievers, someone listening in who is not born again, would, would see their need and would seek the Lord uh, for this great thing called uh, the new birth, being born again. So we looked this morning and saw that it is, it is a necessary birth that we need it, absolutely need it, because of who we are as sinners by nature. We need not just a minor fix, but a radical change. So we saw that it's a necessary birth. We saw also that it's a God-given birth. We saw how he, it's God that he's praising for this. Also, he says it's God who has caused us to be born again. God is the actor in this. So it's a God-given birth. And we saw how each of the persons of the Trinity are involved in this, in this change. And then we focus specifically 
on how Christ-centered this new birth is because Christ is the one who died for sinners so that we might be righteously forgiven. And then he lives, he rose again from the dead, and he is able to impart his life as we're united to him. And we live because Jesus lives. So we pick up there and consider uh, now the privileges of this new birth, that it's a privileged birth. We'll see that it's a privileged birth. And we'll see that it's a clearly evidenced birth, that it shows itself in the life. We'll think also about how comprehensive of a birth it is, and then that it's an initiating birth, and then close with some applications about how it's a motivating birth. So first of all, that it's a privileged birth. You know, when we think of being born, you can be born into different families. Think of the family that you were born into. We're all born into different uh, conditions, situations. Now, what is, what is the kind of situation that believers are born into? Uh, one way we could describe it, it's a privileged situation. It's a, it's a privileged birth. You see, this letter is written to, to believers who are living in this fallen world. Uh, Peter begins by calling them exiles, pilgrims. That's, as, as a Christian, because you belong you belong to heaven. You're, you're in, this, in this fallen world, in this condition that it's in. You're a stranger. You're, you're a pilgrim. You don't really belong here, at least not in its current shape and form, this sinful fallen world that's opposed to God and under the power of the evil one. But these, and these believers are experiencing suffering, trials of various kinds. But one of the ways he encourages them to press on is look at Look at, look at your privileges. Look at what God has given you. Look at the privileges that the new birth has introduced you into. Now, there are myriads of privileges in the Christian life that we could speak of. But I'll just point out some of what uh, the apostle speaks of here. And first of all, it's our living hope. The hope, this hope of those who have been born again. He says, he goes directly into hope. We've been born again, caused us to be born again into a living hope. Into a living hope. Hope is a, is a big word in, 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 in scripture. It means expectation of good that God has promised. But it's, it, it's, not, it's not a wishful thing. It's not like, oh, I hope, I hope it rains tonight or it doesn't rain. No, it's, it's something more solid than that because it's founded on the sure promises of God. It's an expectation of good based on the promises of God that is sure, that is certain. And in the Christian sense, it's the joyful and confident expectation of the fullness of eternal salvation, everything that God has promised to us in the end. And sometimes it's used variously. Hope is used variously in Scripture. Sometimes it can speak of uh, the thing we're hoping for, so the object of the hope. So heaven, we called our hope. Uh, communion with God in heaven. Our hope, the new heavens and the new earth. The resurrection. These are all things that we're hoping for. So those things themselves can be called our hope. But it's also used for the 
experience of hope, the expectation itself is called hope, so that we have, we have this hope within us. The, that subjective experience of hope, being hopeful uh, because of the promises of God. It's also used for the one who is the foundation and source of our hope. So God himself, as the one who has promised us eternal good, is called our hope. Uh, Jesus Christ, our hope. So this is, this is one of the things that, that Peter points out to. He says, you've been born again to a living hope, expectation of good, something good put ahead of you that is certain and sure because it is from the God who is able, and who is faithful, who cannot lie. He is our hope. Now why does he call it a living hope? We'll see more of the content of the hope as we go along, but just want to ask you, why, why, why does he call it a living hope? Well, at least, we can say at least this. It's a hope that will never be disappointed, even by the very, that one thing which puts an end to all earthly hopes, which is death. Death. Death cuts off all hope in this, in this whatever you're expecting. If death comes, that's it. It, it puts it to an end, but not so Christian hope. It's, it's a living hope it's because it's based on one who has defeated death itself. It's a hope beyond the grave. It's a hope beyond the grave. I remember uh, during my college days, I used to sometimes walk in a nearby cemetery that was near my college, uh, New Haven, Connecticut. It was quiet and I could think and meditate there. And, and one time coming, coming from this uh, cemetery, I saw a lady who should been there, the cemetery itself visiting the grave of, of a loved one. And this is one of those times you know, I like you, I do struggle in terms of uh, personal evangelism, but there have been times when the Lord has given the, the love and the courage to start a conversation with a stranger and speak to them something of Christ, and this is one of, one of those times. So I, I approached this lady and I asked her, why are you here? Why are you here today? And she said, she was visiting a loved one, uh, the grave of a loved one, and and I told her, you know, I have, I have a hope beyond the grave. Can I share it with you? Can I tell you about it? And she said, sure. When I said hope, she did. I, I noticed she did uh, prick up and, and wanted to hear. So I told her about our Savior and shared the gospel with her and how we can have hope in him and life, eternal life. And, and at the end of this conversation, uh, I asked her, she was maybe in her 40s, early 40s. And I asked her, what's, we, we asked what, what her name was. And she said her name was Elpida. And I asked, what is, what, what, what is that? And she said it means hope. It's the Greek word for hope. It's, in fact, the word that we have in our passage here. It's the Greek word for hope that we have here. She was a Greek lady. So that's how. 
God taught me the Greek word for hope was in a cemetery. It's a living hope. It's a hope that is beyond, beyond the grave. Peter, who is writing this, can you think of him? He's, he has set all his hopes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they take him. Peter sees him, sees Jesus being arraigned before that court and denies him. And he knows what, what they do to him. They go and they crucify his Lord. They hang him on a Roman cross. They go and bury him. All of his hopes dashed. But then, okay, you think of him when the women come on that Sunday morning and they say, wait, we, he, he is alive, he's, he's risen. Can it be? Can it be? Is, is, is he? Is he alive? He's not dead anymore. Can you think of him running with John to the empty tomb? It, could it be? Is, is he really? Is he really alive? And they come in, and, and there the grave clothes are. They're folded. It looks like he got up from a morning sleep, and he's alive. And then, and then eventually he sees him face to face. Jesus is alive. Can you see why he can say we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? The promises of God. Sure. Why? Because Jesus is risen from the dead. What he patches for us in his death will certainly be achieved. Death itself will not be the end of hope for us. No, we look ahead to the resurrection. We expect all that God has promised us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a, it's a hope. It sure can be called a living hope. It's a hope that will bring the fullness of life. I think that's another way we can think why it's called a living hope. It's, it's a hope that will bring us to life, life in its fullness. Scripture speaks about us being swallowed up by life. Death abolished, immortality brought to light. It's a living hope. Now this hope, this is the expectation of those born again. We're born again into a living hope. Then he mentions our inheritance. We've seen our living hope, our inheritance. Again, you can see how the thought of being born leads naturally to the idea of inheritance, right? Birth, inheritance, those uh, go together. We're not children without an inheritance. Thomas Goodwin, uh, Puritan, he says, Heaven is an inheritance, and as inheritance go by birth, so does this also. He has caused us to be born again, or begotten us again, to an inheritance incorruptible. If no son, no heir, and if no new birth, no son. See what he's saying? Heaven is spoken of as an inheritance, and inheritance is given to children. And children... We become children of God through the new birth. So without being born again, you don't have the inheritance of heaven. Look at how he describes our inheritance. He says it's imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's imperishable. It's not going to 
rot and and wither and and die away. No, it's it's something permanent. It's something that will stay. It's something that's not that's not going to be uh, destroyed by the passage of time. No, it's an imperishable inheritance. This is this is what we're we're looking forward to. He says it's undefiled. No, no, nothing, nothing mixing with it, corrupting it. You see, everything in this world cannot be described that way. Things here are perishable, they're defiled, they're mixed, they're fading. Whatever you set your heart on in this life, it just corrupts, perishes, it's defiled, nothing totally pure. It's fading away, but not so the glory that is reserved for the children of God, the born again. Peter is frequently in this letter contrasting the perishable and the imperishable. We have it here. Uh, You have it again down in this uh, same chapter where he says in verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like he mentions silver or gold, gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He's saying, look, Christ's blood, precious. This is, this is, this is a payment price. It's something that's imperishable. This is how you've been bought from those empty ways of your life through the precious blood of Christ. So that's another place he does this. And then uh, later on in verse 23, he says, you've been born again, not with perishable seed, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, the living and abiding word of God. He's contrasting things that don't last with things that last. Christian, you, you, you've been bought with something imperishable, something precious, the blood of Christ, You've been born again through the imperishable seed of God in you, and you have an imperishable inheritance reserved for you. Glory. He speaks of it in different ways. Glory is another word we can use. He speaks there uh, in this, in this uh, same letter. If you look in chapter 5. He said, in verse 10, he says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confound, strengthen, establish you. These are all different ways of speaking of what's awaiting children. We're looking here at how privileged this, this birth is. Now, speaking of the inheritance in heaven and glory and what's coming, uh, I want to think with you briefly about just how the new birth uh, relates to that, uh, also in connection with justification. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. Uh, it's helpful. This is a quote from uh, Stephen Chanuk. He says, justification and adoption give us right to the inheritance, but regeneration gives us meetness. That's an old word meaning uh, fitness or suitableness uh, to be partakers of 
the inheritance of the saints in light. So he's saying that by justification, we get the right uh, to that inheritance to heaven through the work of Christ. He has purchased it for us so that our sins are forgiven. And then his righteousness is given to us. And he has earned life in heaven for us. And we get it in him by grace freely. But then, but then God changes us to fit us for that life, for that heaven that's coming. We, so regeneration, the new birth, is our being changed and being made fit to live in that world. Of course, this goes on in terms of our being purified and in the ongoing process of sanctification, but it begins here with, with the new birth. You know, Colossians 1.12 speaks about this in this way. Um, read there. It says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You see that qualified you to share in this inheritance of the saints in light. God does something in us and to us. Yes, he gives us the, the right freely by grace through the work of Christ. But then he also does a work in us, preparing us for that life and because of this, it is right to say then that if you're not born again, you're not headed for that life. You're not wired up for it. You're not, heaven has not come into you, so to speak. You're not fit. You're not being qualified for this inheritance. J.C. Ryle, he was a, uh, and in the 1800s, he wrote very helpful works. I commend them to you. He has a tract uh, that the Chapel Library puts out. It's titled, Suppose an Unholy Man Were to Go into Heaven. And he says this. He says, I know not what others may think, but to me it does, it does seem clear that heaven would be a miserable place to an unholy man. It cannot be otherwise. People may say in a vague way they hope to go to heaven, but they do not consider what they say. We must be heavenly minded and have heavenly tastes in the life that now is, or else we shall never find ourselves in heaven in the life to come. Did you hear that? We must be heavenly minded and have heavenly tastes in the life that now is, or else we shall never find ourselves in heaven in the life to come. And where do those heavenly tastes begin to be given to us? It's in the new birth. It's in God changing us. It was said of, I believe it was uh, Richard Sibbs, that heaven was in him before he was in heaven. It, people said that to speak of just how heavenly minded he was and his godliness. But in a sense, that's really true for any, for every, every believer there. As we saw the new birth, it's, it's, it's an invasion of, of the life of heaven, the life of God into our souls. Eternal life begins here. We're not just waiting for eternal life then. No, we have eternal life if you're 
in Christ, a child of God, you have eternal life now, not in its fullness, not in its perfection, not in its completion, but it begins here. We know that we have passed from death to life, right? First John 3, because we love the brethren. In regeneration, we pass from death to life. We have the life of heaven in us. Now, having this inheritance, and then we're in this world with sin and suffering and all of that, how shall we know that we will make it to the end? Well, another privilege of God's children is that we are protected and preserved by God. That's what he says there in verse 4 or verse 5, that you're being kept by God's power guarded by God's power through faith. And the word for guarding, it's, it's a military protection kind of word. It's, it's, he has he is, he is set watch over us, protecting, guarding. See, the inheritance is kept for us, and we are kept for it. And this is the keeping. Who is keeping? It's, it's God, God's power. This word for guard here is used in Acts. I believe it's in Act, not, not Acts. In 1 Corinthians 11, maybe 2 Corinthians. I didn't write down the reference. Uh, but it's where, it's where Paul is speaking about how he escaped from Damascus. Yes, it's the end of 2 Corinthians 11. Uh, he says... At Damascus, this is verse 32, at Damascus, the governor and the king Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. That, that's, that's our word there. So you have this governor who set uh, a watch guard, probably soldiers uh, protecting this place so that Paul would not escape. But then you have in verse 33, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Paul Escaped. See, this guard was not successful, but not so with the guard we have in back in First Peter 5. This is the power of God. His children will be kept secure and safe all the way to the end. These are some of the privileges of the born again. Of course, the, greater, the greatest privilege of them all is just being brought into this relationship with Father, Son, in Holy Spirit, which is true life. Uh, but these things are completed and consummated in, in the glory to come. Well, let's move now from there, the privileges of this birth, to think about the evidences of this birth, that it's an evidencing birth. And here, I'll just point out that Peter speaks often in these verses about faith. Look at verse 5. He says that, that you kept through faith. In verse 7, he speaks of the trial of faith. In verse 8, he says, you believe, though you do not see him. And here, making the point that the new birth, because it's a change. It's a supernatural change that God does in the heart of a sinner by his power. But it evidences itself in life. And one of the evidences of it is faith true faith. The, the life of the person born again is marked by faith he, so that he can be called a believer and that identifies him. He has a regard for the word of God, for the revelation of God. This is, this is what faith is. 
Uh, he has a trust in Jesus Christ, the center of that revelation. Trust in Christ. He believes on Christ as a crucified, risen one who is a savior of sinners. I'm saying these, this is faith and this is one of the evidences, one of the marks of the born again. Where there is true faith, there is a true dependence, a true trust in God, a true resting on the promises of God, believing his promises, his, his precepts. We begin to hear what he says to, her, to us, his commands, his warnings. We're receiving the word of God in its entirety. And such a life is sure to be a different life than the unbeliever's life, right? True faith is bound to lead to a changed life. And so the new birth, which produces this faith and trust in God, leads to a changed life. So it's an evidencing birth. There's a second sense in which we can call the new birth an evidencing birth. And it's the sense of Hebrews 11.1, 1, where we read this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And that word conviction there has the idea of proof, receiving proof, being persuaded. And so some versions, like the uh, King James, I believe translates it as evidence. And what I mean by this is that the new birth one of the things that happens there is you, you, you receive these spiritual senses that Scripture speaks of in such a way that you begin to experience, see, taste spiritual reality in a way that can be described as evidencing to your soul. So scripture will speak about the eyes of the heart being opened. It will speak of hearing, the true hearing, not just externally, the hearing of faith. It will speak of spiritual taste buds. Like when you look at First Peter 2, in verse 3, he says there about those who have been born, the newborns, in verse 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted, is the word that he uses, that the Lord is good. Tasted that the Lord is good. One commentator commenting on that verse says that to the one who's born again, God tastes good. It's quite an expression. God tastes good. You've tasted that the Lord is good. So the point I'm making here is that in the new birth, you receive spiritual sense so that you perceive spiritual reality as revealed in the word of God in a way that is convincing, persuade, persuading to your heart. And so in this way, the faith that is produced in the new birth carries with it kind of evidence. You know the Lord. You've, you've seen him, spiritually speaking, heard him, tasted him with the ears of the heart, the eyes of the heart, the tongue of the heart, so to speak. And this is a big part of why you're, you're persuaded of the truth of God's word. It's not just 
up there in the intellectual level, but there's, there's something that can be described as having tasted that the Lord is good. So this is part of what happens in the new birth. It's God giving, as Jonathan Edwards described it, a, a, a new relish of the heart, the spiritual reality. Edwards has a sermon titled, A Divine and Supernatural Light Imparted to the Soul, shown to be both a scriptural and a rational doctrine. The God in the new birth gives light, which includes understanding and and seeing clearly something of God and his word and his revelation. The illumination of the Holy Spirit and applying spiritual reality in our hearts is part of what happens in the new birth. Now, we've been talking about this change and, and how it's, it's radical and transforming Someone might be here and say, you know, I don't remember when or specific time when, when God changed me when I, that I can point to. And the point we're looking at here, that the, the new birth is an evidencing birth. This can help you because what matters most is that the evidences of the new birth are in your life. Now, those things that Scripture says, this, if someone is born again, this is what is true of them. If, if that's there, you don't need to know when it happened. Is The biggest question is, has it, has it happened? Has God caused you to be born again? So, so I hope that's a comfort to someone who might not know when exactly. But look at your life. Is there, is there faith? Is there, a, is there a receiving of the promises of God? Not, not perfectly, but is there... Is there something of trust in God? Is there, is there a movement towards Christ? Uh, is there some evidences of growth and, and holiness and some of the things you used to love, you're, you're hating and you're loving the things of God? Do you, do you, do you see? Do you, do you hear? Do you taste? If you do, you see, you hear, you taste of the word of God. You, you are alive. You're alive. You're alive. Or think of First John. The first epistle to John is very helpful here. As uh, uh, Steve Lawson says, uh, the, the gospel of John was written that you might be saved. You know how John says uh, these things are written so that you might know, you might believe that Jesus is a Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Uh, John gives that as the purpose of the writing of of his gospel. So the gospel of John is written so that you may be saved. The, le the letter of First John is written so that you may know if you are, you are saved. So I encourage you, look at, look at First John, some of the things that he says. You know, whoever has been born of God, he'll, he'll give, he'll give a, a, a test there. First John uh, 2.29, you know, do you practice righteousness? First John 3.9, 310, 5.18, do, do you live in sin or, or is there a growing practice of righteousness? 1 John 4, 7, are you, are you mocked by, by love uh, in an increasing 
measure, not, not, not perfection, but is there love for God and for his image bearers? Is there a special love for, for Christians, for brothers in Christ? John 3, 1 John 3, 14. 1 John 5:1. do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? And have you received him as such personally for you? Do you, do you? do you have a true saving faith that rests in Christ alone for your salvation? Is he your hope for heaven? 1 John 5, 4. Uh, do you overcome the world, or are you worldly through and through? You look exactly like the world, or, or, or is there something about you that that you are overcoming the world with its desires through your faith and through the superior pleasures that are in God? Let me give you a homework assignment on this on this topic. Find online or ask one of your uh, elders here to find you a tract by J.C. Ryle uh, with this title, Are You Born Again? If this is a question you're asking, he does a good job of going through First John and asking these questions in, in a very helpful way. Okay, let's move to think how uh, comprehensive of a birth this is. We'll just be briefer on this. So we've seen the privileges of this birth. It's a privileged birth. We've seen it's an evidencing birth. It's a comprehensive birth. If you remember this morning, we talked about how sin affects the whole man, the, the will, the mind, the affections. If we are to be changed, we have to be changed in all parts of, of who we are. The mind, the understanding, as again I pointed out, Peter says in verse 14 that we should no longer live in the passions of our former ignorance. That's, that's where we were. But now the, uh, when you're born again, you do begin to think different. Look, look at these people. The, the, Peter is saying to them, now you, you, you think about salvation and, and Jesus Christ and glory and, and faith and, and heaven. and you, 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 You're thinking about trials. It's changing. There's there's a transformation of the mind in the new birth. How about the will? Now there's, there's obedience beginning to come into the life instead of rebellion against God. As he says again in verse 14, as obedient children. Uh, the affections. The affections. What, what, we, what we love, that, that's changing. The, the emotional side, the heart side of things Look at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The new birth touches us at that level as well. He says to them that you, you, you love Jesus. You see, before we were born again, that, that would be strange language, foreign to us. There's nothing of love for Christ. We love sin and self and the things of this world most. But now you see something of him and your heart is drawn and you're seeking to know him and to obey him. You rejoice. You have a joy that this world cannot explain. He says there that it's a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. A joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. He can't find words to put into the joy 
that the newborn believers have. Now it's true, especially at the beginning of this this new life, brought in from death to life. I know if we went around uh, the room here, I know many of you probably, if especially if you were older when you were converted, I can I can tell you I I taste I have tasted what he's saying there a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Believers know that. Yes, we know our low times and and sorrow and grief over various things, but but there's something we we know something about a joy that words cannot cannot express. It's he calls it filled with glory. Filled with the things of God, filled with the glory of God. A fresh joy, fresh peace, unknown before, of a soul that's been renewed, a freedom of spirit, set free from the bondage of sin. Oh, there is a joy. Uh, John Newton's hymn. Fading as the worldlings, pleasures, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. Oh, there's there's something, there's something there. And if if you're listening and you're not born again, if I would I would want you to to know that to know this joy that is in Christ. See, seek it in Him, seek it in Him. Seek the Lord, ask Him, save you and. And you will know true joy. It will begin here and it will be completed, perfected all in this life. It will be mixed and grieved with various trials, as Peter says. But there is, there is a land of pure delights where saints immortal, immortal reign, infinite joy lives there forever. So these are some of the things that that happened that we're saying here that it's a comprehensive change that touches us in all of our being, including at the emotional level. Scripture speaks of this change in in other places. You can think of Second Corinthians five seventeen. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature, new creation. Yeah, it's literally if any man is in Christ, new creation. Old things have passed away, behold, new things have come. And other places we could go to. It's a comprehensive birth, but it's also an initiating birth. So we've seen it's a privileged birth. It's a, what did we see? That it evidences itself, it's an evidencing birth. It's a comprehensive birth. We're now saying that it's an initiating birth. Initiating birth, what do I mean by that? In a sense, that's, that's redundant because uh, a birth by nature is something, it's a beginning, right? It's a beginning, but I want to point this out because, you know, there is there's no doubt that the new birth is really the greatest change that can ever happen to a person on earth. It's, what's, what's, what's greater than it? It's, it's greater, it's a bigger change than both positive and negative changes, you know, than, it's, it's bigger than, you're going to school for the first time, 
graduating from college, getting married, getting your first job, getting your first car, or some of the big negative changes as well, losing a spouse, getting divorced. These are big changes in life, but a new birth is a, is a, is a bigger, more radical, more life-altering that has eternal consequences. It's bigger than all of those things. And yet, the reason I'm saying it's an initiating birth, it's because it's, it's, yet it's just a beginning. It's just a beginning. You've not arrived once you're born again. Uh, Peter doesn't say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's caused us to be born again into a living hope. And that's the end. No, no, no. He, he's saying there, this is a beginning of a new life. It's, it's glorious. It's wonderful. But it's still just a beginning. And it's, it's imperfect. As long as we're in this life, we're, we're in an imperfect state. There's suffering. He says there, we're grieved by various trials. It's not all joy. It's not all peace. No, there's trial. You enter into a unique warfare. Fighting sin. There is a father's discipline. You're grieved by various trials. There's persecution. There's all of these things. So it's, it's just a beginning. And this is part of why we, we hope. We hope for what's coming. We have not received everything here yet. Oh, the new birth. It's just the start of salvation. The, the application of redemption. It's the beginning of it. But it's not. It's not ultimate. Yes, it will bring us to glory ultimately. To full conformity with Christ, to seeing him, it will bring us into the fullness of our inheritance. But that's just a beginning here. And so Peter is constantly in these verses pointing us ahead. Verse 13, he says, preparing your minds for action, set your minds fully on the grace that is to be revealed to you at the coming of Jesus Christ. So he's pointing us ahead. And so it's just a beginning. It's an initiating birth. And speaking of trials there, let me just say a word or two about, about that. He says that we've grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which perishes though it is tested by fire. And he goes on, trials. I find helpful to think of the purpose of trials in, in relation to our faith using this imagery that he uses of gold being uh, passed through the fire. At least three things. I think of them as uh, the revelation. It's uh, trials reveal the truth of our faith, the truth of our of our connection with Christ, the truth of our Christianity, the truth of our profession. He says he compares it that the testing of our faith, more precious than gold, perishes though it is tested by fire. The testing of faith. One of the things that happens when you take that gold perhaps mixed with other things through the fire is that you reveal what the true gold is so trials reveal true faith someone's born again or showing signs off and you're not so sure one of the ways it's watch them go through some trials and see what comes out on the other side trials reveal so it reveals but also it purifies when you take that piece of gold that's being refined through the fire 
the dross is taken away, so trials have a purifying effect as well. But also, the gold, once it comes out on the other side, it's, it shines brighter. It shines brighter. And so, trials have a way of refining, but also in the sense of a believer who is in, in the midst of trials and yet holding on to the faith, trusting God, glorifying God in, in the fire, that shines brighter against the dark backdrop of trials. So, Christian, perhaps you're going through some trials right now. Oh, may God bless this word to you. See that your Father loves you and He knows where you are and He has good purposes for this. Hold on. Hold on. Trust in Him. Press on. Press on. Finally, it's a motivating birth. We'll close here thinking about how Peter applies the truth about the new birth to motivate us to different in, in different ways in this in this letter. We've mentioned one already that he's in highlighting the new birth, he's showing the wonders of salvation. And so in the midst of suffering, as these believers were going through, he wants to encourage them by the thought of the salvation they've been brought into and the inheritance that's coming to press on because of what they have in Christ. But some other ways we're motivated by uh, to, to various actions and perspectives and, and ways of living from the new birth and we'll close with these as applications of this truth. Uh, one, I would say is live, believer, live according to this new nature. Again, looking at verse 14 where he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And, uh, you know, he, and he goes on to say in verse 17, If you call on him as father, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile and so on. So the point there, because of this new nature that you have as one who's been born again, then live in light of that. There are things that, don't, that now don't fit this, this new nature that you have. So learn what those are from scripture and seek to live in accordance with, with the new nature. Denying the last of your former ignorance, as, as, as Peter puts it. If you turn to chapter 4, this same book, he tells them what they were before, and he tells them in verse 3, the time is past. It suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatries. He says, this is, this is what you used to live in, but the time is now past. You're new. You're new the time is gone. The time has passed for that. That's, that's not your life anymore. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So live in light of this new nature. And then another thing to say is desire those things that strengthen this new life 
that you have. Cultivate this life. You know, you have a newborn. You want to feed them, right? You want to give them the milk, the nourishment that they need. So Peter says, long for the pure milk. As newborn infants, in verse 2 of chapter 2, long for the pure milk of the word. Long for the pure milk of the word. We need that life strengthened. Those graces of the spirit within us. Those, that, that, that new life that we have. It, it needs to be nourished. As, as, as branches connected to the vine. We need that constant supply and nourishment from Jesus. So put yourself where you can be fed. You're in the word. You're feeding. Strengthening the inner man. And then I'll say also fight sin with a hopeful sense that God has wired, up, wired me up differently now. I've died of sin through the death of Christ. I can say no to sin. God has wired me up differently. This change has changed me. It's made me a new man in Christ. And bring this to God. Appeal to the God of the new birth to go on with the good work of purifying and helping you put sin to death in light of the new birth. And then finally, long, long for the consummation of this, this life that you have. Because it's just the beginning, as we said, long, long for the completion, the fullness of it. As one has said, grace is young glory. The experience of grace now in the new birth, it's, 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 it's glory began. It's, it's glory in seed form. It's eternal life in seed form. We've tasted the powers of the age to come, and this should cause us to think and hope and to look forward to the completion of it. Well, what a wonderful thing is this new birth, right? Reason. Praise our God for it. To say hallelujah. Blessed be God for giving us the new birth. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we pray that you would apply these words to our hearts. We thank you for the new birth and the wonders of salvation that we see in it and that it introduces us to. Lord, I pray that you would grow and increase this new life in us. I pray you'd help us to join Peter in being so thankful for it and also in looking forward to the consummation of it. Lord, we confess that we are so short-sighted and so help us to look ahead. And Lord, we pray for any here who are listening who do not cannot say they're born again. We pray that you yourself, by your power, would reach to their hearts, that you would call them. We pray that they would look to Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen one, and seek life in him and plead with you until they know that they know. And we ask in Christ's name, amen.